change around my team, yeah, we off the leash. You can look us in the eyes and see we have peace. Black and gold, that's the colors when we go to war. When we step up on that field, you go hear my roar. We them tiger cats, we them, we them tiger cats. We them tiger cats, we them, we them tiger cats. Yeah, nobody hitting harder. Better keep your guard up, cause with everything we drop, we can score it when we wanna. Welcome to Podski Wee Wee. I'm Josh Smith. And I'm Mike Graham. Mike, it is so great to get to talk to you once more. We haven't done this since February. The whole world's turned upside down since the last time we had a chance to sit down and do this. I've been super busy. You've been busy. It's, uh, man, it's, it's just been a crazy time. How are you holding up through all this? You know, it is a crazy time and uh, I'm getting by. Um, I've been at home for a while now. Uh, just trying to keep busy, you know, I've been working on some of those, um, Tiger Cat Grey Cup flashbacks, had a lot, a lot of fun doing those, and I know you've been, uh, working still, and it must be pretty hectic for you, how's it, how's everything going with you? Uh, it's, it hasn't been easy, to be, to be honest, we're gonna start this off, I guess, on a little bit of a, a low note, it's, it's been tough, man, it's been, it's been really tough, I have my good days, I have my bad, uh, there are times when I just want to scream at the world, like, Mm-hmm. Stay the F home. What are right. you doing here? Why are you here? And then there are other days where things kind of go really smoothly. It's uh, it's rough for everyone out there. I understand that. Uh, but be- having to go to work is – it's a blessing and a curse. I- I'm happy that I still get a consistent paycheck. Uh, I-, I don't have to worry about where my bills are going to be paid. I-, I don't have to worry about potentially being rejected for government assistance. So I'm thankful for that. But there, you, you see people day in, day out doing things they're not supposed to be doing and it, it just it makes you go this is why we're in the situation we're in because you guys aren't listening and you just yeah, kind of wish that people would it's very frustrating man it's very frustrating you wish people just i know and i'm one of those people who just has a, a inherent distrust of government where if they tell me to do something i kind of think i should do the opposite but mm-hmm. believe me when i tell you uh the government here in ontario and i think the federal government both that they have our best interests at heart, they're trying to get us through this as quickly as possible. And if we all just did the things we were supposed to do, I think we would be through this a lot quicker than we are. And it's it's tough, man. It's tough. But I've been able to keep myself a little busy outside of work, uh, sleep, sleeping a whole heck of a lot. Uh, I moved to a new apartment during all of this. Uh, and I've been watching a lot of TV, man. Did you did you catch that Tiger King thing on Netflix? I did watch the Tiger King. It, oh, my uh... God. I started the first episode and then I, I basically couldn't stop. It was uh, it was an interesting ride. It was the best worst thing I've ever seen. Like no one on that show is likable. Uh, mm. it it I and here's the thing, like the the Joe Exotic guy, I remember seeing him, someone was I didn't watch it right away. I had a coworker tell me like, You gotta watch this Tiger King thing, it's it's kinda crazy. And I was like, The dude on the show, is he the guy that ran for president? And they're like, yeah, how did you know that? I was like, man, I rem- I saw his face. I rem- it reminded me of this guy I saw on John Oliver's show a few years ago 
and he was like this gay Floridian or something. And I, I guess he's an Oklahoman, but he was, I was like, and he had like tigers and he was poor and he was just like this crazy character. And he, he was running for president and like, that's the guy. And I was like, all right. So I come home and I watch the first episode that night. I'm just like, okay, this is pretty interesting. Cause these sort of like entertainment documentaries usually are. And then it gets to the end of the first episode, and they're all like, yeah, that bitch Carol killed her fucking husband. And I'm just like, whoa, <laughs> hold on. What? And then that, I'm, I'm hooked in. So let me yeah, ask you it the just, question. Yeah, it just got like more interesting as it went along. It you know what and I mean? Like at the end of every episode, like, what? Yeah, they would say something that would hook you in and what make you watch the next one. So, yeah, over the course of like two or three days, because unfortunately I had to go to work, I was able to watch the whole thing. But I got to ask you, Mike, you think Carol killed her husband? That's oh, a million dollar question, isn't it? And uh, the evidence seems to point towards yes. Um, she just doesn't seem remorseful or like not remorseful, but uh, just the way she talks about it. She doesn't seem to care or anything like that. It's just uh, it seems very fishy. But there was another documentary that I looked into as well. It was called Wild Wild Country on Netflix, uh, which was also really good. It's like about this religious cult that moves into this small town and like takes over and is like a sex cult and it's all this craziness yes so i i suggest you you guys out there look into wild wild country it's a good one as well that's just what we need something more more crazy antics to to binge watch i i think she killed her husband or if she didn't kill him she had a hand in his death i mean there's that scene in the show where she's like well if you wanted a tiger to attack his feet you'd put like sardine oil on him and it's like that's a little to like you you know like what the hell very like, descriptive yeah like of, of all things you you know it's that so yeah. yeah i think i think she did the other thing that i've been enthralled with and i hope you have been to uh the last dance the michael jordan chicago bulls 97 98 documentary please tell me you're watching this too yep i've been uh i've been staying up till about i think it comes it will, comes at a one o'clock in the morning on sundays here yeah. on the on the west coast um yeah, it's been it's been great. You know, I grew up in that era watching Jordan, you know, do his thing. And uh, it's nice to have like a bit of an inside perspective to what went on with that team during that time. Man, he hates Isaiah Thomas, eh? Yeah, still the hatred still burns. It's like a, a Angelo Mosca, Joe Cap hatred. Yeah, like they it's I just remember they're like, we got this thing from Isaiah Thomas and they showed his face. And it's just like if he could have rolled his eyes any harder, they would have fallen out of his head. Yeah, um, yeah. They they got to touch on Rodman going to WCW though, right? Like I I don't know about if you remember, but I always heard this story that he showed up on Nitro one time uh, instead of going to practice during a Bulls playoff game. Like they did an entire Dennis Rodman episode, and I know that they're kind of following the season chronologically, so they haven't gotten to the finals against Utah. And like he ends up wrestling Carl Malone that summer, so like this has got to get touched. Like this is part of the Dennis Rodman story. This is just how crazy Dennis Rodman was. So this has got to be in here, right? You'd think so. Um, You know, that was a kind of a controversy that he was, people were saying that he's more interested in, you know, phony wrestling. I remember the, uh, there was a, during one of the games, the, one of the announcers, I forget it was, I think it might've been NBC, but he, he went up, kind of went off on Rodman saying, you know, like he's just doing that phony stuff. Like he's a joke and all this but, uh, yeah, you'd think they got to touch on that. It, it was a very interesting angle with uh, DDP and uh, Den- or Carl Malone versus Rodman and Hogan. It, it played in well to the wrestling because, you know, they have that rivalry in the NBA. So it was, it was, I think it was a brilliant move by WCW to do that. Oh, it was absolutely fantastic. Could you imagine in this day and age if, like, 
WWE after one of those Warriors, uh, or let's just go with the last finals. They had, they had Steph Curry and Seth Rollins versus Kawhi Leonard and like uh, Bray Wyatt. You know what I mean? Like could you like Brock Lesnar and 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 Kawhi Leonard versus Roman Reigns and Steph Curry? Like could you imagine? Like imagine the publicity no. they would get from that. And we kind of just took it for granted when we were younger that it was just like, oh, this is just like. It, that was a huge deal. They got two guys who were battling in the NBA finals to then put aside any type of animosity that they probably, cause like that was real sports, like the Utah jazz and Carm- Carmelo never won a championship mostly yeah. because of those Chicago bulls and him and Robin would go at it all the time. And you think that they were able to put that aside to have this wrestling match and uh, just not a month later. That's uh, pretty remarkable. Yeah, it is. It's uh from you know the actual hatred that I'm sure they had in real life to you know working together to put on a wrestling match, and that was, that was a great idea. The um, bringing in Jay Leno later on in uh, WCW well, was not so much. <laughs> yeah, there's a big difference between using in their prime professional athletes versus using yeah. a 50 some odd year old television comedian. But that's yes. uh, that's neither here nor there. But ho- I'm hoping at some point the last dance touches on it. But even if it doesn't, man, this has been. This has been a fun ride. And I remember those Bulls teams and I remember watching those games and it's weird. They won all those championships and, and growing up I was I was a big Knicks fan and they would always stop the Knicks from winning a title. I didn't hate I don't hate that Chicago Bulls team. Like maybe just because just they were so good and they were so fun to watch and, and they had all these stars and they were so different and you kinda just get get the inside peek of what happened during that, that time and it's uh it kinda it's kinda taking me back to when I was, you know, fifteen, sixteen years old and Kind of remembering, oh yeah, this is this is what it was like, and, and then realizing how long ago that actually was. Yeah, yeah, I know. I, same here. I grew up with those teams too. I I remember more the um, second three peat than the first, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, it's been a lot of fun watching those, and and just the hatred they had for the GM is kind of amusing as well. Yeah, they just could you imagine that that like I know you know athletes don't necessarily get along with management now. But just all the backstage turmoil and, and, and stuff we're seeing in this, and they were still able to to, to win. And, and could you imagine like Jerry Krause, the GM that you mentioned, says to Phil Jackson, maybe the greatest coach in pro sports history, more than likely the greatest coach in basketball history, I don't care if you win 82 straight games, you're not coming back next year. Like, how crazy is that? Yeah, it's ridiculous. I mean, the obviously, ego's gotten away. Um, you know, they who knows? They could have won one or two more championships <clears throat> if they keep that team together. I know that Scottie Pippen uh, played five or six more years. I think he went to Houston yeah, for Houston, a while. Yeah, Houston, Portland. Um, and then back to the Bulls, apparently. I forgot about that. But I think yes, he, went he did. Back he went back Bulls. to Chicago for the final year of his career. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's just it is too bad that Eagles get in the way of, um, you know, such a good team like that. Uh, I, I just can't imagine winning six titles and then saying – you know, to the greatest coach of all time in basketball that you're not going to get another year, like no matter what, it, yeah. it just doesn't make sense to me. And knowing that the the best player that ever touched the court up until that point says, if he's not back, I'm not back. And you're just yeah. like, okay. Yeah. Like, could you imagine pissing that all away? That's uh, how, how they won to begin with. It was, is purely based on the talent that was on the court and the coaching staff. It had nothing to do with, with the general manager, mm-hmm. quite frankly, but uh, yeah. let's move on to some football talk. Mike, you, you touched on it briefly. These tie cats, great cup flashbacks, that you're doing you've you've done the 1953 gray cup you've uh you're about we're about ready maybe in a week or so to get the 1957 gray cup where did this come from because you kind of took me by surprise you, you kind of hit me up out of nowhere about a week ago now 
and said, hey, man, I tried this thing out. Give it a listen. And I'm kind of curious. What was the sort of impetus for the idea? Because I listened. I, I, I know the reaction that we've gotten online has been great. I thought they were great. I think you're doing an excellent job. But I'm kind of curious as to what made you decide to do this? Well, I just I just got a new laptop and a new microphone. If, if you guys can tell, it, my voice might sound a little clearer. Um, on the podcast now and I, and I just wanted uh, I had a lot of free time and uh, you know I was watching Grey Cups on YouTube and uh, I thought hey maybe I'll I'll take a look back at uh, some of the Ticats Grey Cups and uh, try to put something together and uh, you know I put a lot of work into it and uh, to get the positive reaction that I've had from some people it, it's been um, really pleasing to me because uh, you know it, it was it was hard to put together something that was you know, fun to listen to. So I had a lot of fun looking into these uh, these teams. You know, learning some names that I didn't know about, some Ticat legends from the fifties. It's uh, it's been a lot of fun. So what can we expect from the next installment, the fifty-seven championship? Give us give us a little tease. Don't give away too much, but just give us some a little you know a couple nuggets here that you found interesting that that will you'll flesh out on the next show. Well, it's the the. The uh, 1957 Grey Cup was a rematch of the 53 Grey Cup against the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. And I, I'd say the most infam- infamous thing that happened in that game was the uh, the fan on the sideline that tripped a Ticats player. Um, and, and I get into that. And uh, it was an interesting Grey Cup. Uh, the Ticats put a pretty good whoop on the, on the Blue Bombers. And, uh, yeah, it, uh, it, it, was, it was great because... Uh, I learned names like Bernie. Fal- I knew Bernie Filoni, but they're Bernie Filoni and and, and the running backs and, and all the great players, the two way players. It was very interesting to look at the uh, the rosters and just try to decipher what these positions were because there was no like wide receivers listed or anything like that. They were all f- flankers or fly wingers or or ends. So <laughs> it, it, it was it was just it was kind of tough to. Um, list the roster and get all the positions right but uh i think i figured it out pretty good yeah not the game back then not the one we we look at today right no no the the passing numbers weren't nearly as good you know i believe bernie filoni only completed 42 percent of his passes in the 57 season so uh, if you compare that to today's numbers uh it doesn't look so good but back then it was a different game yeah absolutely command could you imagine Ticats quarterback completing 42% of his passes today, he'd be running out of town before the second game started. No, I, I, yeah, I, I completely agree. I don't even know if he'd be uh, on the squad with those kind of numbers. <laughs> Speaking of on the squad, let's talk about current day Ticats. There's no better way to do that than talking about what just happened on Thursday night. The CFL held its annual Canadian College draft. The Ticats had nine selections in the draft, two in the first round. Uh, we'll go through the names right here with the uh, fifth pick of the draft. They took an offensive lineman out of Guelph, Coulter Woodmansey. That is an all-time great name. Uh, I mean, come on. That that's just, that screams offensive lineman, does it not? It does, the Woodmansey. Yeah, it's uh, like he's someone who's out there with an axe chopping down trees, right? Yeah, and he, he's he's got the name and he has the size to match it. Yeah, definitely someone who seems like he'd be a, he'd be a bit a little bit nasty with some of that country strength. Uh, that that pick was courtesy of the Johnny Manziel trade, so thank you for that, Montreal Alouettes. Still paying mm-hmm. dividends all these years later, they still have an additional first round pick next year due to that trade. So the the rich get richer, as we say here. Uh, the eighth overall pick, defensive lineman Mason Bennett. Uh, 
that was uh, the second. That was their first round pick, the second of their two first round picks. Then in the second round, they grab a linebacker out of Acadia by the name of Bailey Feltmate. Uh, round three, pick number twenty-seven. This one, as as we've discussed over the years in the show, I love myself some Canadian receivers from Waterloo. Hamilton boy Tyler Turnowski. Uh, is now a Hamilton Tiger Cat. We'll talk about him in a little bit. Uh, round four with the, uh, or yeah, round four with the 36th overall pick to take a defensive back. The first of three players they drafted from UBC, Stavros Katsantonis, uh, whose nickname is the Bakersfield Bandit. Uh, I was able to uh, listen to my compatriots at Three Down Nation, JC Abbott and Justin Dunk, do the live stream on Twitter, and uh, JC was pretty pretty high on the tie catch drafting. Cats and Tona, so that uh, there there are a few people. If if you were to name the top five people that I know that that know stuff about the CFL draft, you got Dwayne Ford, you got Justin Dunk, and three and four would be JC and John Hodge, and and I'm lucky enough to work with three of those guys. So if if they're high on this guy, I I see no reason why we shouldn't be as well. Uh, in the fifth round, with the 45th overall pick, they take a lineman out of McMaster, Joseph Benz. With the uh, 54th pick in the sixth round, uh, the second of three UBC Thunderbirds, defensive back Jean Ventnos. Uh, then they go kicker in the seventh round with the 63rd overall pick, J.J. Molson out of UCLA. And then the final pick of the draft for the Ticats, the 72nd overall pick, they take long snapper out of UBC, the third of three Thunderbirds, Tom Schnitzler. So, Mike... We say all the time we're we're not experts on the draft. We we leave that to guys like like Dunk and, and Hodge and JC. They're they're the guys. You want you want to go to three down. You want to learn about that stuff. They, there's so many things there. You, we we covered the draft from from top to tail. There's a lot of stuff there that you can you can get on these guys. So for me, I don't really think we can kind of break down the players. I don't think we're we're uh, experienced enough or knowledgeable enough to do that. But I look at this draft. This is how I sort of would like to kind of frame our discussion here to me it's less about the players and more about the positions and it kind of gives us an idea maybe that what these or what the team could kind of be thinking as it goes with the uh, 2020 version of the roster I mean the hope obviously is that some of these guys especially the two players picked in the first round will eventually turn into starters but I think the positions that the guys play that we saw selected matters a little bit more and helps us kind of figure out what the team might look like when and if they take the field this season. So you see they take an offensive lineman in the first round. This is the fourth time in the last, I believe, five years they've taken an offensive lineman in the first round. Uh, Brandon Reffenberg was uh, 2016. Uh, we saw Darius Sirocco, I believe, in 2018. Jesse Gibbon in 2019. And then this year we saw them take Coulter Woodmansey. And Mike, my question here is, do you think the Ticats might be flirting with the idea of going five Canadians along the offensive line? I think they might be be pondering it because, um, you know, I watched the post-draft reaction on Ticats.ca and they had Berkey on there and he said, you know, we play four Canadian off- offensive linemen and, and if you look at the roster, um, it's a possibility that we could be starting five. So I saw your tweet, um, I don't know how long ago it was, but uh, you were speculating that it might be um, five Canadian offensive linemen and uh, I think there's a there's a good possibility that that could happen. Um, now Coulter Wood Manzi um, is a big dude. Uh, he played guard for four years. Uh, I assume that he will be a guard in the CFL as well. But yeah, we got to find that tackle if we're um, whether it be American or Canadian. Um, 
I don't know if there's anyone on the roster that's Canadian that can play tackle at this moment, but uh, we certainly have enough bodies to play five on the offensive line if need be. So I'll give a peek behind the scenes here. I wrote, uh, obviously, for three down, I wrote a piece covering sort of the tie catch draft and what I think these picks mean. And I I talk about the Canadian offensive line, and I, I come up with two scenarios that I think are equally as plausible. I think there's the possibility of kicking Brandon Revenberg out from guard to left tackle. One of the things, if you go back to the 2016 kind of post-draft talk, one of the things that the Ticats were really high on with Revenberg was his versatility. And there was even some talk that, yes, he could potentially play tackle if he had to. Now, obviously, I don't think you move Chris Van Zyl off the right side. That's where he's been his entire career. That's where he excels. I think you keep him there. But I think there's the possibility that you throw Brandon Revenberg out there as the team starting left tackle. I think you then slide Jesse Gibbon, last year's second overall pick, into a starting role. Let him sink or swim. See if he he was picked with the second overall pick. There's a reason they took him. Uh, it, he's going to have to sooner or later be given a chance to start. I see no better way than to kind of slide him in beside a guy in Revenberg, who's a two-time CFL All-Star, and a guy like Mike Filer, who is one of the more underrated centers in the CFL. It's a it's a great learning experience. And then you have Coulter Woodmansey, who you can kind of put into the Gibbon role from last year. He's kind of the sixth or seventh offensive lineman, and that mm-hmm. and that that allows the team some tremendous ratio flexibility because they still have potentially a Canadian starting receiver. We know that they're going to start Ted Laurent and Tunde Adelike. Chances are. If he's fully healthy and the season gets, we actually have a season this year. Sean Thomas Erlington is going to be given every opportunity to be uh, the team starting tailback. So I, it's not like the Ticats would have to go with an all Canadian offensive line, or if they did, it would necessitate any sort of changes elsewhere. They could really start eight, nine Canadians regardless. But I think that's one option. The other is uh, Kay Okafor, Canadian guy who they've had developing for quite some time, has played a little bit of left tackle in some late season games. Like last year, I think he started, he might have started at left tackle in the season finale, or at least he played, I believe. And he's played in some games, uh, I remember the year, uh, I guess it was 2017 when they were out of the playoffs really early, out of the playoff picture really early. I think he, he played some there, and I think he's come in and played when guys have gotten hurt. So that's a possibility as well. So I do think... And again, this is pure speculation on my part, but you see teams, we know they start four. And yes, Van Zyl and guys like Filer are kind of getting long in the tooth. So perhaps there's the opportunity that these guys, one of these guys would replace them. But I think it's, it's, I wouldn't say possible, I'd say, or even probable, but there's, there's a chance that we could be seeing them start five Canadians along the offensive line in 2020. Yeah, they're going to have to figure something out because Riker Matthews isn't walking through that door. You know what I mean? So um, whether it be four off uh, Canadian offensive linemen or, or five, um, I'm sure they'll figure out what's the, the best scenario with all the pieces they have. And they'll, they'll they'll put it together very nicely, as Sean Burke and Drew Alamang seem to do um, every year. They, they just put the, the talent in place and the, the coaches do the rest. And it's really the, the one, I mean, maybe one of two areas where the Ticats actually have question marks. Like you look at the Mm -hmm. roster and you look at the starting lineup, potential starting lineup, and there's not a whole heck of a lot of areas where you go, I don't know what they're going to do there. I don't know what they're going to do there. It's really just left tackle, which is an an important position. Don't get me wrong, but it's really just left tackle and and kicker where Mm -hmm. you're kind of like kicker slash punter, I guess. And I guess that's where the next thing we can go. They draft 
this kid out of UCLA, JJ Molson. Uh, they have Matt White is a guy that uh, was signed by the team while we were on our, our hiatus back in the in the late winter, early spring. So they have some some young kickers, some unknowns. This is not anything new for us with the kicking competition outside of all those years with Medlock. And then the last couple of years with uh, Hyralahu, it's been kind of a revolving door of kickers for the Hamilton Tiger Cats for, for quite some time. So maybe I mean, not maybe I think we're definitely seeing a kicking competition in training camp whenever that gets started. Uh, so I, I think that that makes sense. You, you kind of want the Canadian, I think, to to take that role because then it, it doesn't necessitate you having to use a designated import spot on, on a kicker slash punter. So I think the young guy will have the, – the Molson, the, the draft pick, will have the, the leg up, no pun intended. But I think we're headed for another kicking competition in training camp, Mike. Yeah, I think so too. It's something that we're – we're used to over the years and uh, it always seems to be a little bit of a worry going into the season. Then usually it turns out um, all right. But uh, this JJ Molson kid, apparently he has um, some NFL looks and might not be with the team right away. But the, if the season starts or if there is a season, um, I don't, it's not going to start till September. So maybe by that time he's already exhausted all his NFL opportunities and he'll be in that training camp with the Thai cats. Um, you know, I, I don't know much about the kid, but the guy played at UCLA and, you know, that's a, a division one school. So they, he must do his job pretty well. I, I assume, uh, Mason Bennett's another guy I'd like to kind of touch on. Uh, there's a lot of chatter from the guys over on three down that are draft experts there that say this is, this is a guy who could potentially be a, a starter down the line, which is, uh, which is interesting because they drafted a couple years ago. The team did drafted Connor McGuff kind of hoping that he would break through any, he never did. I'll, I'll hesitate to use the word bust because he, he did contribute on special teams quite a bit, but I, I, I think disappointment would be a, a great way to, uh, to label Connor yeah, McGuff. A lot never. of injury troubles with him. It was yeah. Unfortunate. And, he, and he never, he never took over a starting role. They yeah. he had opportunities, uh, and, and they went with, it was Adrian Tracy and you weren't going to get rid of him. And then, but but like they have Julian Hauser right now, who he wasn't a household name, and still still probably isn't really a household name, quite frankly. But there there were opportunities for McGuff to to kind of take that starting role and become sort of the next, you know, Ricky Foley or uh, or yeah. Brent Johnson or you know the next uh, you know great Canadian defensive end, and it, it never really panned out. So McGuff leaves to go to Calgary this offseason as free agent. What do the Ticats do with one of their two first-round picks? They find his immediate replacement in Mason Bennett, a guy who will likely contribute on special teams to start, as, as most young Canadians do, and uh, a guy who I found out uh, through you know doing some research, uh, reading stuff on him after he was drafted, is the uh, single-season record holder for North Dakota for sacks in a season since they've been a Division One. NCAA football program. So uh, they're getting they're getting a baller here, but it, it really just looks like they they lost one Canadian defensive end. And they slide another one in. Yeah, from the University of North Dakota, it seems to be a bit of a hotspot for for the CFL. Yeah, um, for sure. A lot, of, a lot of great players coming out of there. Um, posted 128 total tackles, like you mentioned, 20 qu- quarterback sacks, three pass breakups, one forced fumble, and two fumble recoveries. So. Yeah, this the uh, he's a native of Winnipeg, Manitoba, and uh, yeah, I, I hope for big things from this guy. Uh, like you mentioned, he'll be a, a special teams guy at first, but uh, uh, lots of time to step up and uh, take over uh, a starting roster spot in the upcoming years. 
the the one draft pick that I'm most most interested in, uh, I kind of teased it earlier. Tyler Turnowski, the wide receiver from Waterloo, Hamilton boy, coming home, play for his hometown team. Like I said, you know how much I love myself some Canadian receivers. I watched this. I actually watched some OUA football last year. I watched a couple of Waterloo games because I have a quarterback, Trey Ford, that I'm really interested in watching play. He's 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 a he's a runner. He's a thrower. He's just, he, when it comes to kind of exciting players to watch. If I'm not watching my alma mater U of T I'm, I'm, I'm kind of watching th- this Waterloo program just because of what they had there. And I saw some big games from this Chernowski kid. I saw against U of T, the game, they, it was like a 44, 41 shootout. He had a, he had a touchdown in that game and I found out he was a Hamilton kid. So I was like, Oh, I'll pay attention to this guy. And he had a few hundred yard games. And again, he's, he's probably the one guy on this list that I'm most familiar with just because of my love affair with Canadian receiving talent. So I was really, really excited when, when he was picked and it, it kind of helps because the Ticats, are a little thin at Canadian receiver. We know they have Brian Jones, who they brought back, but Mike Jones left. Uh, well, I mean, he hasn't left in free agency. No one signed him, but he he's no longer on the team. Um, and now we kind of uh, we kind of have this question mark here with will the team even start fi- uh, a Canadian receiver? And if they do, who could it be? And they they got Turnowski in this draft. They got David Ungerer a year ago, who I, I think also went to North Dakota, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, I'm sure someone will correct me if I'm wrong on that. But you have you have these uh, young up and coming Canadian receivers a little on the smaller side, but that's that's I mean the Ticats' best receiver is on the smaller side, so I don't know. I'm, I'm pretty excited to see what this kid can do on the on the pro field. Yeah, me too. He's he also has a lot of experience returning kicks yep. and, and punts in the OUA. Um, he led the OUA and U Sports in receiving yards with 1,159 and receiving touchdowns with 14 in 2018. So um, the guy can play. Um, we just got to see, uh, how he plays at, at the next level and there, he's only 22 years old. So there's a lot of time to, you know, learn how to play at, at the pro level. And I know it's, it's not important, but it, it, to me, getting Hamiltonians or guys from the Hamilton area on the team, it's always a nice story. Mm-hmm. It's a bonus. You know, I, I noticed that the, the Alouettes drafted like pretty much all their draft picks were from, <laughs> we're from Montreal. Montreal, which is kind of funny since Danny Machocho is the coach there. Um, but yeah, you see it more often now that they're just player or teams are picking players from their region. And I, I think it's a, it's a good idea uh, marketing wise. And uh, it, it's just nice to have home hometown kids on the team. The one area the Ticats did do that is drafting these three UBC guys. And I don't know if you saw the tweet I put out, but it, it hit me. It was an epiphany. Hamilton Tiger Cats, UBC Thunderbirds, merged them together. What do we got? We got the Hamilton Thundercats. You know, Thunder, Thunder, Thundercats. Ho from yes, the old cartoon. What do you think? What do you think? We, 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 do we do we christen them the Thundercats? We could do that. Another name change. Uh, it does have a nice ring to it. The Hamilton Thundercats. I remember uh, just a kind of off story. Um, uh, a co-worker came up to me and he's like, oh, they're making a Tiger Cats movie. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? Who would make a Tiger Cats movie? And we went on. I'm like, there's no way. And he's like, and I was like, Thundercats? He's like, oh, yeah, Thundercats. Well, that makes more sense. So, yeah, I do like, I, I watched the show as a kid and uh, I have no qualms with the Thundercats. So the Argos would be Mumra and the yes. Red Blacks would be Snarf, right? Because they're Absolutely. useless and, and annoying. Yes, very <laughs> annoying. Snarf, snarf. Oh boy, we're gonna get some hate tweets for that, but it's all good. <laughs> um, okay, that's, that's kind of all I want to talk about, Tigats. But there are some kind of general draft 
things that I'd like to talk about. First and foremost, Mike, I think you might know where I'm going with this. The BC Lions in the second round took Nathan Rourke out of Ohio University. Canadian quarterback going with, I believe it was the 15th overall pick. You, you know how many people out there are just clamoring for a Canadian quarterback to be a starter in the CFL. Rourke went to a pretty darn good spot. There's not really a whole lot of competition for the backup job. Mike Riley's there, so he's not taking the starting job anytime soon. But it's not like Mike Riley's a spring chicken. I believe he'll be 35 or 36 this year. I don't know, man. This is a pretty good spot for the young kid to, to kind of get his first taste of pro ball. What do you think? Well, we've heard the hype over the years about Canadian quarterbacks coming into the league, and it never it never seems to pan out. Uh, I hope this is different. But uh, I have my doubts, and I'll I'll believe it when I see it. If this guy's a CFL starting quarterback, um, he might be the best prospect uh, coming out of college in, in many years, quarterback wise. But um, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna hold off on uh, you know announcing him the next great <laughs> Canadian quarterback. So you're not calling him the next Russ Jackson? I am not yet, but uh, <laughs> not yet. I don't want. I don't want to get too down on the kid. I haven't even seen him play really. Apparently, you know, he, he had a really good NCAA career. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, a couple of his teammates are actually uh, current Ticats. Poppy White, the receiver, and uh, last one of Hamilton's picks last year, uh, Malik Irons, played with them uh, at Ohio. That's that's why in my in my draft preview for three down, I thought maybe there's a chance the Ticats could be interested in, in bringing uh, Nathan Rourke in. Not like they need a quarterback. They're pretty set at the quarterback position, but Hey, you can never have too many quarterbacks in, in a league like the CFL. Uh, two Amer- uh, or Canadian players that were drafted in the NFL got a little bit of interest up here, obviously. Uh, Neville Gallimore and Chase Claypool. Gallimore ends up going to the Riders with, I believe, an eighth-round pick, and Claypool uh, went undrafted. I believe Gallimore went in the third round to the Dallas Cowboys, and Claypool went in the second to the Pittsburgh Steelers in the NFL draft. There's been a bit of um, debate about whether it was it would, would going into the draft, whether it would be smart for a team to take either of these players. And there, there's the one side of the debate that says uh, they're both kind of uh, high round picks in the NFL and they'll never see a CFL roster. And then there's the side that, uh, spoiler alert, that I kind of reside on where y- you never know. Uh, Philip Blake was a guy who was drafted in the fourth round by the Denver Broncos and the Mitra Alouettes spent a draft pick on him and people said, oh, he'll never play in the CFL. And then he did. Uh, TJ Jones, who is on the verge of, hopefully playing for the Argos. That's obviously with what's been going on, kind of been pushed to the back burner, but no one seems to know where that's headed was a guy. He was, he was a seventh round pick, but he went to Notre Dame, much like uh, Chase Claypool. And the thought was he'd never play like he played in the NFL and he played like four or five years in the NFL and made, you know, decent enough money as a guy who played in the NFL. Oh, he'll never come to Canada. And it's very likely that he will play in the CFL. So I'm kind of on this, on the train of, Look at some seventh and eighth round picks of the past decade. How many of them ever actually end up cracking a CFL roster? You got two guys here who may never, may never ever play up here. Like David Onyemata was selected by the Riders, probably won't play in the CFL. But if he ever does, much like with Neville Gallimore here, that's a pretty formidable uh, defensive line that the Riders would have there. Mm-hmm. I I think. Later in the round, I'm not saying take use a second or third or even fourth round pick on one of these guys, but if you're sitting there uh, in the in the eighth round, seventh round, and you're kind of don't know where to go, what's the harm in using a draft pick on a guy who, yeah, he may never play for your team, but if he does, whew, what a hell of a talent you get. 
Yeah, exactly. I, I think the way you do um, to pick pick a guy, those guys that are such high end talents um, in the seventh or eighth round, it, it's worth the risk because if you get that guy come back to the CFL, I mean, he'll be one of the best Canadians in the league. So, especially that uh, Chase Claypool is at him, the the second rounder. Yep. Um, he looks like a stud. Uh, yep. He probably won't be in the CFL, but like you said, you just never know. And I think it's worth the risk if you'd have brought him in. Um, he would be he would impact your team immediately. I will be honest. When the Ticats are picking with the second to last pick and they take a long snapper, I'm like, why not? Why not just take a flyer on Claypool? It's the mm-hmm. second to last pick of the draft, and yeah, he might never play up here. But like, I don't. I don't know. Again, I'm not. I'm not trying to throw shade at anyone, but I just that 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 to me feels like at that point, what do you have to lose? Chances are the guy you pick there is never going to play a significant amount of time anyway. Why not take a chance on a guy who, if he ever plays even one season up here, would give you elite level production? It's just, uh, I mean, maybe that's just the way I feel. Yeah, I'm with you though. Like the only eighth rounder that I can think of recently is Sean Thomas Erlington, yep. and that's, uh, you know. Those don't happen very often to find a gem like that in the eighth round. It was just an incredible pick by by Alamang and Burke. So, um, yeah, I'm with you. You know, in those late rounds, why not take a take a chance on a guy that might be in the NFL for a couple of years, but could help you down the road? I remember years ago, I was doing some, I was looking at some drafts and trying to figure out like where where guys went. And I remember Luke Brodeur Jordan, the longtime. I believe he was a center for the Montreal Alouettes was the last pick of the draft one year. And he was like the only guy picked after like the fifth round in any of these, in any of like the previous 10 drafts who ever amounted to anything. So it's, you're, you're that late in the draft. It, why not? Why not just take a flyer? Um, did you watch any of the draft, Mike? Uh, I was able to catch uh, the first two rounds. Okay. So you watch, you watch what was on TSN. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think of their presentation of the draft? I was left a little underwhelmed because it felt very sterile. It was uh, Farhan, uh, Dwayne Ford, Dave Naylor, and Davis Sanchez. And it felt like every pick, they, it was the same formula. And I understand we're in kind of these unprecedented times and it wasn't going to be the same thing that we've had before. But it just felt really dull, I guess. would be. Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't feel as informed as I had been in past years, uh, I know that they they've uh, over the years had used um, some some uh, U Sports coaches to to talk about some of these guys and and Dwayne Ford, you know, he's one of the goats when it comes to talking about the CFL draft. But I don't think it's Naylor's or Sanchez's forte to no. be talking about these incoming no. players. I, I don't think that they're as knowledgeable as they should be for something like this. Uh, it just it it just felt weird. It was like. Farhan announces the pick. They go to some YouTube highlights. They talk about the guy for five minutes, and then they move on. And why wasn't the commissioner doing the pick? Like the NFL draft was a week before that, and he was doing the picks from his home. The commission can't set up his iPhone and and announce the picks. It, it was it was the whole thing was kind of bizarre to me. Yeah, I, I felt the same way a little bit, and I don't want to get um, you know mean or anything, but. Um, it seemed to me like Davis Sanchez didn't really know what he was talking about. He like, and, and I'm not, you know, he gets paid to be an analyst. I am not a professional at this. So obviously he's better than I am, but I just felt like he was running around in circles when he was talking about the guys and, and wasn't that great at analyzing the players. Um, the same could be said for Naylor, but I thought Davis Sanchez was, was worse. Uh, the, the setup, you know, it's just, it's just a little stale. 
you know, and yep. I know that it's tough, um, especially this year because they're doing it at home and, and all that stuff. And, and I'm with you. I don't know why Randy Ambrosi was not there to announce the picks. Uh, it doesn't make sense to me. But, uh, yeah, I was a little underwhelmed with uh, with the draft this year on TSN. The weird thing to me is Jim Mullen, who runs the uh... – if you if you probably follow him on Twitter, he's like mm-hmm. in the know about Canadian university football. He works for TSN. How you have draft coverage and don't utilize that guy makes no sense to me. He produces a college football show for TSN, and yeah. yet he's not on your draft show. Like unless he was busy, and that's entirely possible. And but if you have a guy that you're paying for your network that is as knowledgeable as anybody about Canadian university football, how is he not on your draft show? Yeah, to me, it, it, you know, Farhan should have been there, like hosting it. That's that's great. Um, you get Mullen. Uh, you get some of those guys from uh, Crown University. Is that yep. what the show's called, I believe? Yeah, yeah I think they make change but something like that, yeah. Yeah, it's a really good show. I've watched it before. It's really well produced and put together greatly, and the guys really know their stuff. So, yeah, I, I don't understand. I mean, he works for TSN. He's knowledgeable the most knowledgeable person that they could get um, besides maybe Dwayne Ford. But if you had um, Farhan, uh, Ford, and Jim Mullen, I think it would have been a lot better than having maybe take off Sanchez and um, Dave Naylor. I think it would have been a lot more informative with those guys. Yeah, so near the end, I watched it on TSN simply because A, it was on TV, and it's if it's on TV, it's, it's more interesting listening on the radio. And uh, B, I wanted to be able to comment on their presentation because I was kind of curious after the NFL draft, which I thought was a lot better than it had any kind of right to be considering all the things that were going on. Now, I know the CFL is not going to send cameras and hats to every top draft picks house, but we saw draft reactions online from from family like the Ticats have guys. Hey, send, we picked you. Send us in a thing. TSN couldn't get a couple of these guys to send in some uh some reaction videos of, of them getting like these guys, some of these guys knew they were going to get picked. And I don't know, it just seems kind of bizarre that they, they wouldn't go sort of that uh, they would do something different instead of just having it be kind of the same the entire way through the two hour show. And I know I harp on this every year, but I think this year more than most, it makes sense. Why wasn't the whole draft on TV? I understand in years past, it's like, Hey, we got NBA basketball or even years before that, we got NHL playoff games coming up. We want to be able to get to those West Coast things. What the hell are they throwing to after this? What 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 came on after the draft this year? What, what highlights are you showing on Sports Center? Like old game? Like why not? Just you can't keep these. And again, as as bad as I thought the the presentation was, you can't keep these guys on for another hour and a half and and go through these. Well, they're picks. doing it online anyways, aren't they? Uh, I don't know if they did it on. I know TSN or CFL.ca had some online stuff. I don't know if TSN ended up doing it, but why not show it on the TV? Like, what else are you showing at 10 o'clock at night on a Thursday when there's no sports being played? Yeah, once again, it doesn't make much sense. I mean, they're going to throw to a an old game of the Raptors or whatever, whatever they're showing on TSN. And I haven't really been watching TSN or Sportsnet or any sports channel for that yeah. matter um, because there's just nothing to talk about or nothing to watch. But, it do- yeah, it doesn't make sense that they couldn't, you know, have a live um, sporting event, uh, in quotations, sporting event, uh, that they could, you know, they have eight eight rounds. It could have went on for much longer, and they'd have 
much more live coverage. It, it, you know, and I heard the ratings were up quite a bit from last year because there's nothing yeah, else on. there's so, nothing else on, so people are going to yeah, watch. Yeah, so there's, there's no reason to stop at the end of the second round and go to the internet. Um, they could have just went the full way. Unless, you know, they maybe they just didn't want to. I, I'm not sure. Uh, last thing I want to talk about about the draft is uh, kind of patting our boys on the back here. After the TV show portion of the draft ended, I flipped to Twitter, put uh, the live stream that we had at 3 Down Nation up on Twitter. Uh, Dunk and JC were doing a pick-by-pick recap, and I thought they did a phenomenal job. I felt so much more informed listening to those guys talk about these draft picks as they came. We had John Hodge doing live uh, pick analysis. Every pick, he, w- he would give it a grade, how he felt about the player uh, getting picked, about where they got picked. It, w- it was just phenomenal coverage. And I know it's a bit, a, a bit self-aggrandizing to kind of talk about what 3Down did, but I thought that was the best draft coverage of anyone anywhere. I thought they did a hell of a job. I know it's just going to get better as the years go on. And I don't think you can find more extensive, more in-depth. There's there's like 50 player profiles of guys that were drafted. Some of them, uh, if you're looking for some tie catch draft picks, I do know that there were uh, there were profiles done on Woodmansey, uh, Bennett, Feltmate, Turnowski, and uh, Kat Santonis. So the first five picks the tie cats had, we had stuff on the site. Uh, JC, Dunk, and Hodge talked to these guys, and they did these profiles. They're, they're wonderful if you want to kind of get to know some of these players. I thought they did a hell of a job on the live stream. There were not a lot of snafus. I learned a whole bunch of stuff. I, I, I think in the future that's uh, outside of watching it on TV, just so we can actually have a conversation about how TSN did. That's where I'm going for my draft stuff, because I, I, I thought I, I, I left Thursday night after having listened to those guys, knowing more about these late round picks than I felt I knew about the early round picks that TSN had covered. I thought it was just tremendous. Yeah, they, they those guys have a tremendous amount of knowledge about they care. these players. They, they, they put they put the work in. They care. This is yeah. kind of Dunk's baby. He loves talking about the draft and, and young Canadian players. So we've sunk a lot of resources into it, and something like this shows. Yeah, absolutely, and I'm sure he was. Dunk was overjoyed with the fifteen, uh, the number fifteen <laughs> Rourke, pick, yeah. Nathan Rourke. I know he's high <laughs> on those Canadian QBs. Uh, but yeah, like I said, they, they they put a lot. It's a lot of work to get knowledge on all these players, um, you know, especially when you can't see them play every week. And um, I think they were they were they were trying to get. They had Dwayne Ford lined up, but uh, there was some um, problem with the connection or something. I thought. So. Yeah. So they actually have about a two-hour podcast of the four of them. It's it's Dunkster, uh, Haji, JC, and they got Dwayne Ford on there about halfway through listening to it, and. It's good stuff, man. They they go through yeah. so far. They've gone like pick by pick, talking about these guys. They spent an inordinate amount of time on the first round, especially. Uh, so I can't wait to dive into the rest of it. You will learn stuff. These are, in my estimation, three or four of the of the best guys in this country analyzing the Canadian college draft. So if you want to learn something, head over to Three Down, get the podcast, read all the stuff. It's it's awesome. Yeah, Ford was supposed to be on the live stream after TSN ended. Mm. But yeah, there was some problem getting him on there. But they got a two-hour podcast with him, and it's so nice. far so good. Yeah, if you could get, you know, Dunk, JC, um, Hodge, um, Mullen, and then Ford. I mean, that would be There's that would team. be a good panel. That would be a good panel. That's, right your, ni- that's your 92 dream team of Canadian yes. University football experts. Absolutely. Uh, okay, last little bit of Ticats news before we talk a little CFL in general here. Uh, we talked about Liram Hyralahu, lost him to the Los Angeles Rams. 
we used to crap on this guy and now he's playing in the NFL. I know it's, it's, it's kind of funny, isn't it? Um, but in our, in our defense, we did come around on him. He had a tremendous last season. Uh, the guy was just very, very accurate on field goal kicks. Um, you know, it was funny. We we're talking about it earlier that we look back at say like the 1957 team and there, uh, you know, the kicker went nine of 17 in the regular season. And, uh, this guy was kicking at like 80% plus um, for most of his career with the Tiger Cats, and we were bagging on him. So uh, best of luck to him. Uh, you know, we know him very well. We know that he can kick those long field goals, which probably was one of the reasons why he drew, drew attention from the NFL. And uh, I hope he makes it down there. Oh, I, I every player, I say this every time we lose a guy to the NFL, I hope we never see him up here ever again. I hope they have a long, lucrative career in the National Football League. Uh, but he signed a three-year deal. Uh, you mentioned he's got a booming leg. If he can ever figure out the 40 to 49-yard field goals, I think he's got a long career. Kickers can kick forever in the NFL. I think mm-hmm. he's got a long career ahead of him if, if he can if he can do that. And we know he can punt as well. So if, if there's ever sort of a an issue with – I mean, the, the Rams don't need a punter. They got Tommy Longball Hecker down there, and he's maybe the best punter in the in the NFL. But – if, if, if he ever gets a shot with another team, if it doesn't work out with the Rams, like, I, I don't know. I, I don't think we ever see him up in the CFL again. I think he's, I think he's NFL for a very, very, very long time. You just got to be careful if he's doing kickoffs to, yep. you and know, that field's a little bit smaller. Those, it's a, it, yeah, it's just it. It's a slimmer field, so it might yeah. be even harder for him. Yeah, so it'll be, if he does make it, it'll be interesting to see how he handles that. I'm sure he'll be fine, though. I'm sure he will as well. Speaking of fine, but I guess not fine, the CFL – Asking for a little bit of help from the federal government, Mike. Uh, we saw it this week, or I guess it was it was early last week, that they are uh, potentially asking for $150 million from the federal government to help them sort of manage the the impact of, of what's going on right now. Uh, $30 million is apparently uh, to deal with uh, assistance for an abbreviated season. And then while it's not – there's nothing sort of set in stone here, potentially – up to another 120 million in case there is a lost season. This is tough for me when I think about should the CFL get government assistance, essentially get taxpayer money to kind of keep themselves afloat. And as a fan, I'm yeah, I'm on board with this, but as a taxpayer, I it's it's weird to kind of think of a pro sports league getting government assistance. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. And maybe this is thinking of the big leagues, the the, the NFLs, the NHLs, the the NBAs of the world, and like they're billion dollar enterprises, and and shouldn't need government help. And then the, the CFL is not that. The CFL is a, a strictly Canadian institution, and the government's going to give money to to like amateur sports and and to the arts and to to those types of things in the community. And I feel like the CFL to the communities they're in means just as much. It's like I'm, I if I say I'm for spending taxpayer money on the CFL, I feel like your critics would just be like, "Well, you just say that because you like it." But I, I, I can't be. I, I'm not anti this. Like, I, governments have spent money on stupider stuff than helping keep a hundred year old Canadian institution afloat. So, I think in kind of thinking about this, like, why not? 150 million. If you divide that by the amount of people that pay taxes in this country, that's that's what. It's a drop in the bucket for everyone's taxes. Yeah, it's definitely a, a touchy subject, and I knew online, especially, there'd be a lot of put um, pushback, you know, from all the people that don't necessarily watch the CFL or don't care for it or, or hate it all altogether. But um, 
I'm with you. You know, it's a, it's a bunch of small to medium sized businesses. Um, it employs a lot of people. There's a there's a there's a big economic impact on game day um, for for businesses around the area of the stadium. Uh, and like you mentioned, the CFL is not the NFL or the NHL or the NBA. They they all have massive TV deals and could survive uh, with playing games without fans. Um, the CFL would be a little bit tougher to do. Uh, they have a nice contract with TSN, but it's not nearly, not even close to what um, the, those other pro sports teams make off their TV. So, um, listen, I'm obviously a huge CFL fan, and I, and I want what's best for the league, so I don't have a problem with it. But I can understand um, why people would. Oh, I, I totally, I, I like, to, yeah, I definitely understand why people would have a problem with it. Because there's people out there who say, like, art galleries shouldn't be funded or, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like, there's always going to be someone who said that's not what taxpayer money is supposed to go towards. But, I mean, what's the – what do we have? 34 million people in this country. So let's let's do the math right quick. It's 150 million divided by 34 million. It's $4.41 a person. You know yeah. what? Tax me, tax me $10 extra. And I'll pay for the uh, uh, two and a half people. You know what I mean? Like it's not mm-hmm. – it's a drop in the bucket when you when you do the math, right? It, it really is. It, it's – you know, the number up front, 150 million people see that number. Whoa, that's a lot of money to be given away. But in the in the large picture, in the bigger picture, it's it, it's not that much at all. And is it is it worth – is it worth every person in this country to pay – well, okay. We, we can even – how many people do you think in this country – like the CFL? Uh, it would go by the Grey Cup numbers, probably, you know, three and a half to four million, maybe five. Okay, so so let's say let's say 10% of the population. Is is 10% of the population willing to give a few extra bucks on their taxes so that this – I would be. Would you? Uh, I would be too. Yeah, absolutely. I'd be – I'd be happy to give ten bucks. Uh, that's not, you know. Tell it's, me it's a hundred bucks, and I'll be like, add it to yeah. my, add a ticket search, add it to my tickets. Like, mm-hmm. say, oh, every ticket's uh, five bucks extra, and that five bucks goes towards repaying this loan. Well, and there's no if there's no uh, CFL. I mean, there's no there's no Podski Wee Wee podcast, and we can't have that. No, well, no, we can't. But if there's no CFL, there's one less thing for us to talk about, one less thing for us to watch. I mean, yeah. it's a Canadian institution. Yeah, and like I said, it, it does have an impact on the economy, and you know the Grey Cups have a huge impact on the economy, and it's just I think um, it's a lot more important than some people think. Yeah, and I I get the argument that oh it's just it's you know something fun for people or whatever it's it's their hobby and we shouldn't be funding hobbies and all that stuff and I don't know man it's it's something I like it's something you like it's something a lot of people like and. 150 million dollars in the grand scheme. I think you're right. This the, the sticker shock of oh my god, 150 million. It's a lot of money. But I mean, if you look at it now, the only the money they they've only said they they absolutely need is 30 million. That's less than a dollar per person in this country. And to my knowledge, uh, you were talking about this earlier that it, it's not just like here's on here's 30 million, here's no. 150 million, and uh, you know have fun. There's going to be some kind of payback. Yeah, Ambrosi said himself. He goes, the model would that we would like would hold the league accountable to repaying Canadians back through things like community programs, tourism promotion, the Grey Cup, and and their digital channels. 
the Grey Cup makes anywhere from 50 to $100 million for local communities. Okay, sorry, Hamilton, but you're, you made $120 million on the Grey Cup. We need to take $20 million of that and funnel it towards – you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like there's there's ways to repay this in, in ways that uh, – I mean that we wouldn't see essentially. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like I just yeah. – I don't know. It, initially, I was just kind of like, man, pro sports league getting money? Ugh, that's tough. We bail out bigger things than this. I mean, look at all the big banking institutions that have been bailed out right? in the past. And yeah, that's ridiculous. Come on. it's. Yeah. I, I want to be able to sit in the stadium and watch some CFL. I want to be able to sit in stadiums and watch some Canadian pr- uh, Premier League soccer. Like, exactly. I'm missing this stuff right now. Like, we're, we, would, we would be four weeks. I would have been at a soccer game yesterday if, if none of this was, would have been happening. And it's... I'm bummed out. I'm missing the, these things. And, and to me, that sounds torturous. But, but to you, I mean, it, it's <laughs> it, a good it was, time. Hey, there's a defending champs, baby. They're, they're, the only, they're the only champions in the city. You got to support them. Sure, but you know sure. what? The, the, there's the Canadian Basketball League. And, like, I, I don't want to see these things go away. I want to see these things stay. And, and if it takes paying a little extra on my taxes because of it, you know what? I'm not going to complain. And, like, what if the CFL goes away? I mean, you're talking about all those stadiums that are just – you know, empty, empty basically like it's just not a it wouldn't be a good thing that that's for sure i gotta be honest with you i don't think the nfl would let the cfl die i really don't i think the nfl knows that the cfl is a great pipeline for them for talent i mean we just talked about a guy that played in the cfl for five years six years now making making a team in the nfl if Liam hirelahu doesn't have the opportunity to play in the in the cfl does does he get an opportunity to be a professional football player at all like Doubtful. you're I, I just I think I don't think the CFL is going away. I think they need a little bit of help. I think that uh, they're worried because this is something none of us have ever dealt with before, and they're not a billion dollar institution, and they don't know how they're going to pay their bills. And I understand that. I don't think there's any way that if if there's no CFL season this year, I don't think there's any way in which the CFL doesn't at least continue in some form or fashion. I just I think it's too important to the world sporting community, uh, especially to a place like the NFL. And I think it's just too important to Canada that I, I just don't I don't see it going anywhere. I really don't. No, no, I don't. I don't think it's it's been a long. There's just they're not going down without a fight. That's for sure. And uh, I, I, either way, I don't think it's going to happen. All right. So you sent out a tweet from our account asking for some questions a few weeks back. And seeing <clears> as this is the first show we've done since you sent that tweet out. I figured it'd be fun to kind of end the show on a little bit of a, a Q&A. Dip back in the old mailbag. We haven't done one of these in a while. What, what do you think, Mike? Uh, let, let's get into this. Yeah, yeah, I'm down. All right. So Derek sent this question in. It's the first one. What do you guys think the Ticats will do with their quarterbacking situation? Now, obviously, as everyone who listens to this that's Ticats fan know, Jeremiah Mazzoli is coming off a torn ACL, and Dane Evans stepped in last year and led the team to the Grey Cup, posting some tremendous numbers, especially in the second half of the season. And both these guys are under contract for the 2020 year. Uh, Mazzoli re-signed just, uh, I believe it was New Year's Eve, signed his contract extension, and then obviously Evans inked a three-year extension uh, back last offseason. So uh, what do you think, Mike? What do you think the Ticats will end up doing with their quarterback situation if, if and when there is a season this year? It's a very interesting question, and I think the answer has changed um, over this um, the, the, this time that we we've known that the the season isn't going to start till September if it starts, and with that amount of time, you'd have to think that Jeremiah Mazzoli will be fully recovered um, from his injury. And uh, you know, originally we thought Dane Evans would be the starter at the start of the season, and then 
Uh, maybe Mazzoli would, would take over once he was healthy, but I think there's going to be a straight-up competition going into training camp, and the best man is going to get the job. The, the, the man who performs best um, in training camp is going to get this position as a starter, and I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen, to be honest with you. I think these guys, Jeremiah Mazzoli and Dane Evans, are both great quarterbacks, both starting caliber quarterbacks, and uh, we're in a great position to have them both. Yeah, in a regular scenario, this would have been, I think, kind of a a redux of the uh, 2016 season, where Mazzoli started the first handful of games while Zach Caleros nursed back himself from his knee injury. But you're right, with the season probably not starting until September, that will be 14 months almost since Mazzoli suffered his injury, more than enough time to get back to as close to 100% as a 30-year-old player can be. And yeah, I think there will be a straight-up competition. I think Mazzoli, given the contract extension he signed, has the leg up. I think money sometimes talks in these situations. I don't think you bring a guy back on a 400000 a year contract to sit him on the bench. So uh, I think he'll be given every opportunity to regain the job that he once had. I think if he comes in and shows he's the player he was that was the East MOP in 2018 and was just about ready to take off in, in the 2019 season. I think regardless of whether Mazzoli gets hurt or not, I think this Ticats team finishes with a, you know, 14, 15 win season and head to the Grey cup, whether they win or not, that's a different story. But I, I, I don't think this season changes drastically with Mazzoli in there instead of Evans. I think Mazzoli gets every opportunity to show he's still that player. And then the real question becomes what happens in the 2021 offseason. What do they do with these two guys, with Dane Evans being a guy that definitely deserves to start in this league, Jeremiah Mazzoli being a guy that definitely deserves to start in this league. They'll obviously have a decision to make there with Mazzoli being a free agent again and Evans being in the last year of his contract. So one of those two guys will definitely, I think, not be with the franchise in 2021. Who that will be, we'll have to wait and see. But I think going into this year, I think it's I think it's Jeremiah Mazzoli's job to lose. And uh, once they hit the field, we'll find out if that is indeed the case. Uh, Truly the Goats, which is a podcast that I was actually on back a few uh, a couple months ago to talk about Angela Mosca. First off, Oz asks if he can come on the show to pimp the show. Dude, I'll pimp the show for you anytime you want. You don't even have to come on to do that. I had a wonderful time being on there talking about Angela Mosca. We talked old school wrestling. We talked current stuff as well and and we talked about kind of Angie's role in the in the Hamilton community and all that good stuff it's if if you if you want to listen to some interesting Oz is an interesting dude and puts together some interesting stuff go check out truly the goats it's it's a really fun podcast but he asked us another question he says if there is a shortened schedule which team would benefit the most the Ticats the Owls or the Red Blacks now, first off, I just want to say I love that the Argos are just completely ignored. Oz really <laughs> knew his audience on this one, didn't he? He did. He really did. <laughs> so what do you think, Mike? Which of these three teams in the East do you think benefits most from a shortened season? First of all, I just want to get this opinion out there that I've seen a lot of people say, oh, I won't even watch the season if it's nine games long because oh, no, there'll be an asterisk. That is total BS because, listen – Yes, it's a shortened season, but the teams play the same. You know, it's 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 a competition. It's not. It doesn't have to be 18 games long for people to take a Grey Cup champion seriously. I mean, it doesn't make any sense to me. There's no asterisk. The Ticats win the 2020 Grey Cup. I will not put an asterisk beside it. I will, you know, enjoy it as much as uh, an 18 game regular season Grey Cup victory. So do, do we, I just want to get that out there. Do we put an asterisk beside the team that won the 2012 Stanley Cup or the 
2011 NBA Finals or the 1999 NBA Finals or the 19... Washington won two Super Bowls in 82 and 87 in strike-shortened seasons. Do they get... Mm. No, we don't do that in sports. If there's a, a shorter season and it's played and there's a champion, that's the way it does. The one thing I will say, if a team was to go... like Say it's a nine-game season and a team was to go undefeated... I think you, there's some gray area there because you know we don't. I'll really, agree with that. You know what I'll I mean? Because it's like, yeah, you won. We've seen teams win. We've seen teams win nine in a row a lot of the times. It's that's the one where I'm like, even if the Ticats do it, I'd be hesitant to say, oh, they're the first undefeated championship team in the CF. Like that would be a little weird. I mean, right. I think you'd have you could say, yeah, like it would be true, but at the same time, be one of those things where you're like, yeah, but it was a half season, so I think that's. There's there's a margin for debate there, but if they crown a champion, if they, they play a season, whether it's nine games, ten games, twelve games, if they play a season and they crown a champion, there's no there's no demarcation to say it doesn't count as much as any other ones. That's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, but uh, to answer the question, I think the Tiger Cats have the advantage because I just think nine games, eighteen games, twenty seven game season. Um, they're the better team than the Alouettes and the Red Blacks. So uh, it's an easy answer for me, the Tiger Cats. I'm so shockingly agreeing with you. I think if I was to order these teams, I think it's the Tiger Cats at one, the Owls at two, and the Red Blacks at three. And the reason I, I think that continuity, the Owls and the Tiger Cats have roster continuity and coaching staff continuity. So those two teams are better set up in a scenario where you got to kind of hit the ground running really quickly. They don't have a lot of guys to kind of catch up on what needs to be done. Yes, the Ticats have added some players, uh, most notably Patrick Levels and Devere Posey, but they're veteran players who can pick things up rather quickly. Ottawa, brand new coaching staff, brand new starting quarterback, kind of starting from, from the ground up here. It might actually benefit them in the long run because say they – they kind of hit the skids and don't do very well this year. Let's say, let's say it's a nine game season. They go two and seven, miss the playoffs. At least then it's kind of like, well, you know, it was a shortened season. It kind of gives everyone in Ottawa, like a free year almost if they kind of suck. Whereas I think the other two teams are just better set up to be, to be successful in, like you said, eight, 18, 27, 50. It doesn't, I think the Ticats are the best team in the CFL, regardless of how many games they play. And I think the Owls are a notch below them, but much more set up for, for success than, than Ottawa is right now. Yeah, I, I, I think about the nine-game or ten-game season, it kind of makes me excited because um, every single game would be oh, of max so... importance. I mean, <laughs> I mean... Oh, yeah, so, great. so... Could you imagine if, if a team like Ticats started off 0-2? Yeah, it'd be, it'd be devastating. Any team starts off 0-2, it's like, oh, in an 18-game regular season, it's like, oh, there's lots of time to, especially in a nine-team league. But uh, when you're playing nine, ten games, every single game is, is massively important. And I just think that almost every single game would be of playoff caliber. Uh, and it'd be really fun to watch. Yeah, I've... Uh... It'd be different, and I'd enjoy it. Like obviously, you want the 18 game season, but yeah, mm. I think the the sprint to the finish line in a shortened season could be a lot of fun. Um, Gary asked us if there's no season, do all the players in the last year of their contracts become free agents? And this is an interesting question. Obviously, we don't know the answer. We don't work for the league. We don't work for the players' association. We don't know. We did see that report that there was the possibility that a canceled season could see all the players become free agents, and that was. A crazy hypothetical that would have been fun to, if we were recording shows at the time, that would have been fun to kind of bat around, like kind of play fantasy football with the nine teams and we can kind of draft mm. who we want. It would have been, would have been kind of wild. But um, 
I'm, I'm not sure. I, I, I've been thinking about this in relation to, to the NBA because obviously one of the big moves of the past year was uh, Anthony Davis being traded from the uh, New Orleans Pelicans to the Los Angeles Lakers. He's in the final year of his contract. And they've played some of their season. There's the possibility the NBA could come back. But what if they didn't? Does that count as a full season accrued? Does he become a free agent in the offseason? Do the Lakers get him for another year and it defers? Like, it's, it's, it's kind of a – I think if the player gets paid, the, con- the contract's been fulfilled whether they play the game or not. Um, so I like, obviously we don't have an exact answer. We're just kind of guessing here, but I would think um, that if the season is canceled, I, I think the guys that are on the last year, of the deals will probably become free agents at the end of the year. Yeah. Because on the contracts, it lists years, right? So yeah. the year's over or whatever. I think that the contract would be done and they would be a free agent to do whatever they please. But I can't imagine, um, just releasing every single player, the the pandemonium, the the it would just be insane, and I wouldn't want that to happen because I think we have a pretty good roster put together on the Tiger Cats. So uh, I'm not sure, uh, you're not sure, but uh, it's a very very interesting question with um, a lot of answers. I think. Okay, let's let's sidebar for a second here. Every player in the CFL is a free agent. Who's your first? Who's the first guy you're calling to get him his name on a contract? From a different team that, uh, or from our team? Um, let's go different team just to make it interesting. Because from our, because obviously the answer for, uh, oh, give me back everyone that's already on the Ticats. Because like you just said they're 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 loaded top to bottom. They're the best roster in the league. So mm-hmm. you want to bring all these guys back? But let, let's let's say from another team. If you, everyone's a free agent. Who's your first call to that that isn't a current Ticat? Well, I'm looking at the. Um... I'm just thinking the first player that comes to mind that's just been a tie killer over the years, tremendous player, tremendous offensive player, uh, Brian Burnham. I think that, you know, we, we have talent at the receiver position, but to bring a guy in like that, uh, I think would be a tremendous addition. So you wouldn't go after a quarterback? <sighs> yeah. That's a tough one. No, I'm going Brian Burnham. So so it's not Bo. Bo wouldn't be your no. first call. I know no, you don't like I, him, but I, come on. How can age, abilities, resume? I, th- I think I think he's the, he's the first guy you. you I, I think he's the first guy I make a phone call to. And then we don't have to worry about him beating us. Sure. I don't know. I, Bo, 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 Bo. Okay, Listen, so I I don't like the guy very much, but. Uh, I will give him that, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a good quarterback. If he was the quarterback of your team and they were going 15-3 and three every year, I think you'd be his biggest fan. Uh, I think I would, too. I, mean, I just don't like him because he's, you know, yeah, not on, my, not on our team. And, uh, yeah, yeah, the, it's funny how things change when they put on the black and yellow. <laughs> so first pick of players, including current Ticats. Is it, is it Brandon Banks? You bring Brandon Banks? He's the first guy you call. Make sure his name's on the dotted line. Yeah, I, I believe so. I mean, he was the MOP last year. He's uh, obviously a, tr- a tremendous uh, receiver, and he's very important to this team. So one of the leaders on offense, I, I'd have to bring him back. But it would be it'd be tough because I'd like to see either Dane or Jeremiah Mazzoli as well come back. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd probably have like 50 phones going at once, making sure I can get right. all the guys I wanted. Uh, yeah. Making it work with the salary cap would be interesting. But I don't know. It's just kind of a fun thought experiment uh, how that would go. All right, Mike. Last question. This comes from our buddy Claudio. So watching the last game at Ivor win the other day, thinking about that linebacking crew that was so damn good with Ray Williams, JJ, and Knowlton. Besides Simone Lawrence, who is the obvious choice, 
what are your guys' favorite linebackers of all time? Obviously, he means Ticats linebackers. And yes. Mike, this I think this was specifically put in here for you. Hitch doesn't count. <laughs> so there's been a lot of great linebackers in the history of the Hamilton Tiger Cats. Mike, he, uh, Claudio lists three guys who were just absolute studs in Ray Williams, uh, Jamal Johnson, and Marquise Knowlton. Outside of Simone Lawrence and obviously Rob Hitchcock, who is your favorite? Or, or give me a, you can give me a couple guys, some of your favorite linebackers to ever don the black and gold. Well, the number one guy has got to be Calvin Tegel. Um, you know, he's with the team from 97 to 99 in those glory years, won a Grey Cup, um, was an all-star uh, several years. He just, um, there we go, 1998 a CFL, PA all-star, CFL all-star, um, you know, just name it. He was a tremendous linebacker. And I also liked uh, the guys that he mentioned. You know, that trio back then was was off the chain. I mean, he, those guys were pretty much all all-star players, whether they were on the all-star team or not. They were the, the best linebacking crew in the league. So I, I was really high on Marcus Knowlton as well. So if I had to name two guys, it would be Tiggle and Knowlton. Yeah, see, I was a Jamal Johnson guy. I, I, don't get me wrong. I love Marquise Knowlton. That dude, the monster man, was I, – I I say it – it's sort of become a catchphrase that that 9 season was the rebirth of my love of this team. Uh, I moved back to Hamilton and, and start going to games more frequently. I have – you know, I'm an adult. I have money that I can go to the games as much as I want now. And the linebacking crew from that year was Jamal Johnson, Marquise Knowlton, and Otis Floyd. And Otis Floyd is one of my all-time – he only played for the Ticats for two years, and he is one of my all-time favorite players. I have his jersey hanging in my closet. He came back for a, late, a game, and I think it was a Labor Day. It was, I can't remember when it was. It was at, it was at Ivor Wynn, so he must have come back in either 2011 or 2012 for a game. And I'm walking through the concourse, and I, I'm where it's his, like they're do, he's going to like lead the team out of the tunnel or something, and he's going to be at the game. I'm like, you know what? I'm rocking the Otis Floyd jersey, and I, I got the white away jersey too because it's like, yeah, everyone's got the black jersey. I want the white Otis Floyd, and I got a custom made, and I'm walking into the stadium. And I'm walking through the the old Iverwind concourse uh, on the on the left hand side, and who do I see coming out of sort of the makeshift locker room? Otis Floyd, and I go, oh my god, I got to get my picture taken with this guy. He sees me in the jersey. He looks at me. We kind of you know do the old you know cool guy handshake. I snap a picture. I still got it on my computer. It's one of the coolest things. I said thank you for your couple of years here. He was one of my favorite players. So uh, Otis Floyd's the guy that popped to mind right away with this question. Uh, Jamal Johnson and Marquise Knowlton are two other guys that popped in. Calvin Tiggle was another guy. And this one's going to make a lot of Ticats fans furious. But for the few years that he played here, he was damn good. And that's Mike O'Shea. I know everyone thinks of him as an Argo, and understandably so. But as, a, as, as sort of the first defensive player that I really remember from my childhood, like 12, 13 years old when he came to the team, I really liked Mike O'Shea. He broke our hearts when he when he left to go play for the Argos, but he's kind of a guy that I, I kind of think of too. So, uh, but if I had to pick just one, I, I think it's Otis Floyd, man. There's just something about the way he played the game that I just absolutely loved. I actually had a Mike O'Shea jersey when I was uh, a younger chap uh, when he was around, and he was uh, great. He was a great player. That's why it pissed oh, us off absolutely. so much when he left. Yeah, and uh, shortly after you left, the numbers and uh, name was taken off that jersey by my father. So, uh, a funny little story there. He was, he, I mean, he had a lot of hype coming out of college. He was a great player. Obviously, he had a great career in the CFL, 
And you're right. He he was a great Tiger Cat linebacker. Okay, that was a lot of fun, kind of digging back into the past there. Mike, you dig into the past all the time now with your Tie Cats Grey Cup flashbacks. Lou uh, Cassero. Remember the name, folks. Lou Cassero, the hero of the 1953 Grey Cup. All Legend. right. We're, we're going to... I look forward to the next episode, Mike, next installment. I look forward to you doing more of these. Maybe one day I'll jump on and we'll talk about uh, we'll talk about it together. But uh, I love you're doing these things. Next one should be out pretty soon on the 57 Grey Cup champions. But for now, that was Podski Weaver for this week. I am Josh Smith. And I'm Mike Graham. Eat them raw. Eat them raw. And stay safe, everybody.